Welcome to another episode of Shaped by the Sea, the podcast where we dive into the minds of seafaring folks who have a unique story to tell. Listening to new perspectives and keeping an open mind is crucial to fighting our ocean's biggest threats, like overfishing, climate change, and pollution. I'm your host, Brian Urisitz, and today we have a special show for you. Joining us from across the pond is Ellie Crisp, the director of Green Teen Team, an education nonprofit dedicated to engaging young people in conservation projects, educational workshops, and summer camps across the globe. Today, Ellie and I will be discussing the environmental issues that matter most to teens, activism versus science, inquiry-based learning during the pandemic, and advice for folks in the field of education. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Ellie. Ellie, thanks for taking the time to be here. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of Shaped by the Sea. Um, It's a pleasure to speak to you again. No, no problem. No problem. And so, Ellie, you're joining us from, are you in Italy right now? I am actually, yes. I'm right in the middle of Milan at the moment. Nice. So, so across the pond, and I'm sure you've, you've got some unique perspectives, uh, different than uh, a lot of the folks that I've been talking to recently who have been based in the Americas. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to, I think we're going to have a fun show here. And so, Ellie, just to introduce yourself a little bit, um, I'm curious, what connects you to the outdoors and kind of what brought you uh, to become the director of Green Teen Team? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there's a quite a long story there, but I guess it just starts with me growing up in the countryside. So um, I grew up in England um, in a county called Suffolk, not far from the East Coast. Um, I used to spend a lot of my time on the beach, by the sea, uh, in the sand dunes. Um, and I think that that's probably what takes me back. Um, I, I can't really get through life without being connected to nature in some way. Um, I need to be outside. I need to be grounded. It's my well-being. I mean, I'm st- stuck in the middle of Milan. I'm working here. But there are beautiful parks um, and there are beautiful areas where you can go. And obviously, I have a dog, so I walk a lot. Um, so wherever I am, I will always find some nature. Yeah, no, that's I mean, that's the same with most people. Um, you know, when you're when you grew up uh, being connected to the ocean and nature and all these natural places, it's something that sticks with you your whole life. And yeah. um, and Ellie, I'm I'm curious what what brought you into the field of education. So I think that I spent a lot of time when I was younger working with young people and working with adults, and I found that working with young people was far more rewarding. Um, and I kind of, it wasn't really my ambition to be a teacher and I'm still not a, um, a I'm a qualified teacher, but I don't teach full time in a school um, because I have some issues with the education systems. Um, and so I work privately and I work part time in a school um, teaching theory of knowledge in the, in the IB system. Um, so it's something that I'm very passionate about, but it's something that I need to be more free to do myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that I mean, that's what I hear from a lot of educators is that, um, you know, being a part of a system like that, it, it gets frustrating. Um, and I'd imagine we're going to talk a lot more about this through our show. But uh, that kind of brings me into Green Team Team. So that's, you're the director yeah. of Green Team Team right now. And um, I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to Green Team Team's mission and 
um, you know, why it was founded and, and why yes. you, you chose to work there, you know, and, and, and work on this. Yes, yes. You asked me that in the beginning and I didn't finish answering it. Sorry. <laughs> I think that, um, so, so as my role as a tutor privately, I was asked by a family to set up um, an educational nonprofit, a foundation um, that would help young people and be about nature. Um, and so I did that for my student, who is the, the natural founder of Green Team Team. Um, and at the time, she was quite young. She was nine. And she obviously at nine years old, you kind of know some things, you have some ideas, um, but you need a bit of direction. And I asked her what she wanted it to be about. And she said the environment, because we need to take care of the environment. Um, and so that was the starting point. And then we spent some time in the local wildlife park, uh, which is also... Um, quite a well-known um, center for endangered species. Um, and having spent time there and talking about it, uh, we realized that obviously biodiversity is vital to our existence. Um, but there are a lot of endangered and threatened species in Italy, in the UK, in America, in our gardens that we don't know about. Um, we hear about endangered tigers and exotic animals in faraway places but they're not very tangible so we decided that it would be a good idea to try and get projects in places to educate the people in those places about the species that were threatened or endangered that were close to them so that's kind of how it started yeah so biodiversity is really kind of the core of your mission and preserving biodiversity yes. correct and when you start with a project like that on a, on a species that's local to an area, then it, it the project grows very naturally because it depends on that particular area as to what's needed there. It's not like a one size fits all. Each project is unique and has different demands and in different places. So um, yes, it's very interesting. No, that that that's very intriguing, especially because I mean, geographically, Green Team Team focuses all across the world, correct? Um, you've, you've, I know that you've worked, uh, you focus your work in Europe, but um, you guys, you guys have set up projects all, all across our planet, correct? Yes, that's right. I mean, it, it was also a very organic process. So we set up legal bases in uh, the UK and in Italy. So in the UK, we're a charity, um, and in the in Italy, we're an onless, which is the equivalent. Um, and then we have satellite projects or collaborations in different places. So like Madagascar, the Maldives, South Africa, uh, Zimbabwe, some things we've, we've set up that didn't work. We had a project in Romania. Um, the things are very difficult to, I mean, you know, because you've worked with nonprofits. Um, and yeah. In remote places also, it's very difficult. Um, so, we, but we very much go with the flow. Um, when we work, as I said, exactly. one size fits all doesn't work. <laughs> you can't do the exactly. same thing in Italy as you do in the Maldives or in South Africa or in Zimbabwe. It doesn't work. Exactly. And just for, for the reference of our audience, that's how you and I met originally was we were working together on one of your projects in the Maldives that's to try right. and create, yeah, to try and create uh, a free, free educational resources online for students there. Uh, that that would meet um, the correct, uh, I guess, the learning objectives of uh, the school, the school yes. districts there. And, you know, th and that just working with you on that really hits hits that point you just made home that there is no cookie cutter 
um, way to teach environmental science. Like, and and this is a a topic that I feel like I keep I always bring up in my podcast episodes. No matter who I talk to, is that no matter uh, every place that you go is going to be innately different from anywhere else on earth. And you know, you really have to work with uh, just the local culture, the local you know so socioeconomics that are in that area. Um, you have to understand just where you are for to absolutely. teach the people there, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the project in the Maldives is a very good example because there we identified, well, not difficult to identify a threatened species, the uh, the, the whale shark or even um, yep. uh, endangered species, the whale shark. Um, and that is therefore very affected by um, pollution and uh, irresponsible tourism. Um, yep. People go spend lots of money to go to swim with a whale shark, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've seen it, um, but then when you go and talk to the local people and the children in the schools, they've never seen a whale shark. They they've probably seen pictures, but you look at a picture of a whale shark and then actually see a whale shark in the ocean—two completely different things. So, how can we expect people to protect something that they've never seen? Um, exactly. So we try and help the children or the students that not just school, but also the local community by taking them out on the boat and kind of showing them how they do research and how they spot the sharks and how they identify them and get them involved in that side of things. So they actually know what they're working with. Um, yeah. A lot of the tourism industry is really the employment industry in the Maldives. Um, and the young people can go and they can earn like a zillion times more than their parents earned. And so for them, yeah. it's like a no-brainer. I'm what, sh what should I do? Should I study biology? Should I study marine science? Or should I go and work in a hotel? Um, and it's very difficult then also when, if you did want to study marine science, you couldn't study it because there wasn't the course or there wasn't enough people on the course for the university to run it, which is one of the problems we faced um, with Iru, who was helping us out. Um, yeah literally waiting for like the week before to know whether she could start the semester um, and then find out that there weren't enough people enrolled. So the project was to try and support the young people in the IGCSE syllabus for marine science and then with a view to supporting them to then studying it um, at the next level and then hopefully getting more interest from local industry and things like that to sponsor kind of more assistance and support for young people. And the education, yeah. the Department of Education was so happy about it because they have two sides to it. Because if all those things do disappear from the Maldives, then the tourists won't come. So they're torn exactly. between supporting the tourism industry, which is their their um, sustenance, and also keeping the, the natural environment the way it is. Exactly. It's a, it's a balance like anything else in this yes. field. And... That actually, that brings me to um, another, I mean, you might have just answered my question, but I was going to ask what environmental issues are at the forefront of your work with Green Teen Team, but it seems like that varies just from location to location and, and from does, project to project. It does, it does. Yes, because in Zimbabwe, the other um, another project we have that I mentioned, um, it, the identified species is the painted dog, um, and that suffers from um, poaching, and the young people often leave school without any like future plans or any ability to go anywhere else or do anything. So they naturally fall into poaching. So there, that kind of opens up 
um, another side of things. So you have to try and give them alternative ways to earn money or um, strengthen their education. So the, we support the Painted Dog Conservation, who run summer camps um, that the kids can't, well, they're not even summer camps, they run them all year round. They work incredibly hard. Um, and they've seen some of the teenagers turn from potentially being poachers into being park rangers and things like that. And so it's it, this, the small things really can change things for some young people. And you have to think about these particular places are not necessarily very rich. And so yeah. their concerns are not about how many plastic bags they use or how much shopping they <laughs> and things like yeah. that. So it is very difficult to kind of go in as a as a Western person from a developed world in a position that they aspire to be and then go, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that, you have to do this, you have to do that, um, because that, that doesn't work either. So you're right, it's difficult to identify the issues with the young people until you talk to them about it, and they'll be very different in different places. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You. When it comes to a lot of these issues you're talking about, you it's crucial to meet folks where they are. And yes. that's what that's what I find a lot in this field is that when you when you come at this telling someone what they should and shouldn't be doing, you know, they're they're not really as they're they're not inclined to listen to you. Whereas Why, if you give who are you to tell them what to do? I don't I really it kind of goes back to missionary days and things like that. And I'm sure very valuable things came out of that, but also unvaluable things came out of it and you exactly. want to make a change that's permanent that's there when you go away um that's only going to happen when you work with people and you do the things that they need and that, that that's led by them um yeah. because otherwise you go away and everything stops so and you can't throw money at it either it's not something you can go in and go right oh here's this amount of money do this because that's not going to be long lasting either so it's really no. very it's really very difficult to, to, to balance the right thing. Yeah, it's almost like education is at the core of making any is, change yes. in sustainability long term. Yes, it's true. Long term. Then you can't go in and teach them either in that sense. So sit them down in a group and say, right, today I'm going to teach you how to look after the whale shark. It, it's like when they say um, don't, don't, um, don't tell, show. You have to... Um, it, it, yes, it's a very organic process and it is a long-term thing as well, as you know. Um, it, it, you have to build trust, you have to build relationships in yeah. places where there are tribes and there are elders. You have to have things um, agreed and passed and talked about and judged and all of those things. It's, um, it, it's, it's, the long, it's a long game. It's not something, a, a quick fix. No, exactly. And and I believe as well that there really truly needs to be opportunity at the end of the road for any yes. change to happen. Like, for example, in tourism, um, what's happening nowadays that, I, that I've been seeing and, and speaking with other folks in the industry is that, you know, there's a demand from the modern day consumer for sustainable goods and services. And so yeah. that demand, you know, it, it's it's driving it's actually driving businesses to change their ways and it, it creates this opportunity for sustainable tourism, right? Uh, that yeah. there's a demand for it. So people are going to meet that demand and it's almost, it's, it's, yeah, it's complex. It's very complex making changes happen in places. But, uh, I, I truly do believe that education is power and, and, and knowledge is power, especially, especially when you're teaching the next generation. 
And yes. Yes. That kind of that kind of brings me to a something else I wanted to speak about with you, which is I, I guess in your work um, and as an educator, what environmental issues do you see that teens that you work with are most connected with and passionate about? Okay, so that's more directly in Europe, and I think in Europe we've noticed that teens are really not happy about plastic pollution. Um, and the amount of plastic that is produced and the effects of littering. So, I mean, there are quite a lot of environmental issues kind of at the forefront in the media and the press, but the things they've really picked up on um, and, and wanted to work with and created projects around um, has been plastic pollution and littering. But it's really difficult yeah. because plastic is ingrained in our life. I mean, even before COVID-19, um, I mean, now it's crazy because now you don't see plastic bottles anywhere. You just see masks everywhere, um, yep, which yep. are probably going to take just as long to biodegrade. But um, the amount of plastic, if you just, so let's just say, okay, so we stopped selling plastic bottles and there were no more plastic bottles. Just the amount of plastic that's in the food industry, in the medical industry, in like packaging of everything is just incredible. You can't go anywhere without something being packaged in plastic. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you. I bought some basil today in a really nice compostable pot and a really nice compostable plastic um, from the organic shop. And I yeah. think to myself, why can't everybody do this? If some people can do it, why can't everybody do it? And I think yeah. that's probably what the young people is kind of in their heads at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely ingrained into the fabric of our society. But something I I wanted to ask you why you think that plastic pollution resonates so strongly with students, especially teenagers nowadays. Um, I I have my own thoughts. Personally, I've worked as an educator up in New England. And, you know, I, I do see that um, when it comes to environmental issues, it's like it seems as though plastic is the one thing that they all see vi- and connect with personally anytime they spend time in nature. Right. You don't you don't have to be an expert on plastics to to go for a hike and see, you know, the, all these little single use items littered all over the place and, and realize, wow, this is a problem. Um, that's that's kind of my take on it. But I was I was curious what you thought. I think there's been quite a lot of media coverage about it. And I think probably on social media, it's been quite strong. And I think that the people who are behind that are young people um, who have a passion and, and connect with young people doing the same kinds of things. I guess, I don't know, when I was thinking about it earlier, I was thinking it's kind of related to when I was younger it was kind of a war on drugs and not people not taking drugs and not getting involved in that kind of thing. Um, but it just seems to the war is on plastic now. Um, and that's yeah. changed a bit. Does that make sense? And it sounds quite funny and it makes me sound old, but um, <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think that everybody's kind of taken it up, but no, I don't know that it's done very much. I, I mean, we working with a project in the Philippines um, started actually um, in the lockdown um, and they support families and children who live on the rubbish dumps and, yep. and the irony is that they earn their living by collecting the pieces of plastic in the rubbish dumps and selling them um, yeah. and so here we are trying to stop the plastic so that they and what are they going to do 
how are they going to make their living? And they've, so it's just, um, I think, a very strange situation to be in because you kind of, I don't know how we're going to get rid of it, how are we going to take it away? So there's all this yeah. press about it, but maybe it's just lip service because the reality of it is unless people start using biodegradable plastic or someone comes along and invents something that's completely revolutionary, I it's very difficult for me to say and teach children about these things when really what are we doing we're telling them to do something but then everyone else is not changing yeah well, well when it comes to plastics yeah it, it, that's <laughs> that is a conundrum honestly when it comes to the situation around plastics and um you know because it, it, it is true that you it, it's important to teach folks that they can uh, the importance of living a plastic-free lifestyle and just trying to yeah. to limit your footprint because it does it does make a difference. You know, uh, sharing this stuff on you know with your friends and family, um, it can influence public behaviors and and the demand for if you look at businesses now, um, consumer demand for like I was mentioning before for sustainable products mm -hmm. is is skyrocketing. So it is shifting consumer demand and hopefully businesses will be able to meet that. But you are right that it, it does feel futile at some points, just continuously going out and doing these cleanups and, and seeing the same things year after year. And, yeah. and when it comes to that, I do think that policy is important because there are, yes. you know, there, there are alternatives out there now. And um, that seems to be very important is the, um, uh, the responsibility of the producers. In. And that's yes, and I think that's what I really hope, and one of the reasons why I work with young people is because whatever they do, whether they're doctors or lawyers or teachers or whatever profession they take, they're going to be looking back on their teenage years and going, "Ah, oh, yes, I remember doing that. I remember doing that. Here I have an opportunity to either buy plastic at this price or something that can be biodegradable at this price, and what am I going to do?" And I think that's when the change is going to happen. And so yeah. for me, it's not a question of going, oh, it's futile, I'm not going to bother. Um, it's for me to go, okay, I have to put this across in a certain way that they understand that it's not necessarily going to change now, but it's going to change in, in a period of time. Um, yeah. Or they're going to be the ones that invent the new thing that, that changes everything. Because, I mean, if you think about things that have changed things just in our lifetime, you wouldn't think about it beforehand, but then all of a sudden it, it, it changed and we yeah. go forward. Yeah, no, exactly. And something that we, we touched on just, just now as well, um, that I think really drives young people to care about the, the issue of plastic, single use plastics is how, how conducive it is to social media, right? Like, yeah. uh, I've been seeing, you know, people take photos and videos of this stuff and it's, it's almost shocking and it's picked up easily by, you know, media outlets and it's very visual and people can connect with it. And obviously young people are more connected on social media than any other generation is, you know, they're with TikTok. Um, you know, I'm, I, I haven't delved into TikTok <laughs> yet myself yet, but, uh, but you know, Instagram, Facebook, all this, um, young people are, are highly skilled and, and, adept to these to social media and and this is i think that's got to be part of the reason why they care so Definitely. much about plastics is because it's just it's it is one of our uh, our environment's issues that lends itself well to that yes. and um 
And so, I mean, that's, that's just my take on it, but uh, I, I, that's a, a very interesting points though. Um, and so, yeah, so, so you'd say the plastic pollution is the biggest issue and, and what, and one of the environmental issues that you, that green team team really was founded on and, and the mission of green team team is to protect biodiversity. And so mm-hmm. the two of those, uh, you know, go hand in hand, essentially, correct? Yes, yes, because you take care of the environment. I think the other thing that, that the people we work with don't really understand is if you're going to use something, then why don't you just put it in the bin? Why are people throwing their stuff out of their car window? Or why are they fly tipping? I don't know if fly tipping is used um, in the States, but when people go and dump their rubbish on the side of the road, um, sometimes in large amounts, um, why can't they just go to a recycling place or have someone come and pick it up or put it in a recycling um, bin or, or separate rubbish and things yeah. like that? And I think it's so it's not just the use of plastic, but it's if you're going to use it, why can't you dispose of it properly? So the litter yeah. side of things. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And and that's that's something that education especially when you're young, really can nip in the butt, you know, and, and yes. prevent from ever happening. And, yes. um, but actually, so that, that brings me, that, that makes me think here. Um, so you with green team team, you work to give students these, these in-person, you know, firsthand experiences with the outdoors and, and special natural places. Um, and I'm just curious since, since this pandemic has hit in Europe, are you seeing that students are spending more time outdoors? I mean, this is something that I've definitely seen in New England and I've talked about in past uh, podcast episodes is that I, I've seen families are connecting with the outdoors like never before. Are, are you seeing similar things happen out there in Europe? Um, probably not quite as much. I don't know. When you had, um, did you ever have a quarantine or a lockdown in New England? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. We, we that was it was very intense from uh, March until you know uh, really early summer um, okay. and then we started to open up a bit but uh, a lot of people were because the bars restaurants you know all travel was all suspended folks yes. were actually just you know the the last thing to do was to go for a walk in your neighborhood or yes. to you know go outside and look you know, look for local wildlife see if you can go bird watching in your backyard you know. Um, yes, I think so we, it was a little bit more intense here because people weren't allowed to go for a walk for a, quite yeah. a long period of time. Um, not in all of Europe, but certainly in Italy and a little bit in the UK. Some places like Switzerland were a bit more open about it. Um, so I think when the, the restrictions were relaxed a little bit, then people were going outside and they were doing things. but couldn't wait to go for a bike ride or for a walk or I didn't hear people saying I couldn't wait to get in the car (laughs) or go for a drive (laughs) but I heard people saying I couldn't wait to get outside and smell fresh air and things like that so yes to a degree and I think we've seen in Europe a lot of people traveling not traveling um, abroad for holidays obviously because of the travel restrictions um, and also the ever-changing quarantine regulations in Europe so a lot of people have been staying in um, people have been staying in England. They called it a staycation, um, yep. and people in Italy and in other countries as well. So less people traveling. Um, but that's going back to littering. I mean, there's some awful pictures in the news and things like that of people leaving the beach and just like 
thousands of bags of rubbish and picnics and things like that, which they they all left behind. So there's good and bad in it. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what we've seen here as well. I think it's it's almost it's there's so many prawns, but uh, pros, but there's also so many cons yes. um, to this because, you know, I think it's it's a huge it's a massive pro that folks are, you know, they want, they actually, for the first time in a long time, want to spend time outside. New audiences are trying yeah. to get outdoors. And, you know, I think that's, that's huge because um, it does, it, it, it breaks down people's apathy f- for yes. these outdoor f- places. And they get to get out there and see firsthand how they are overcrowding, how they are becoming polluted. Yeah. Um, and the issue, the issues that we battle every day in our, in our field. And, but at the same time, if those folks aren't educated as to the proper etiquette when, you know, when you're hiking or camping and, and really leaving no trace when yeah. you go outdoors, then it, then it leads to overcrowding and some serious issues. And, and we've seen that actually in the, in the U.S. Some natu- national parks have actually closed down trails and closed down campsites really? because, because, yeah, just because they were being trashed, trashed by people. And um. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we've we've seen we've seen the effects of that over here. But um, I was I was just curious if it was similar in Europe. Um, I think so. Not- yes, I mean, it, it seems from what you've said, it seems pretty similar. I think yeah. it's I think it's really important for well being, though. I think getting outside, um, and I don't think people actually come back going, "Oh, I had a really bad time." <laughs> I think they're going to yeah. come back and be tired and hungry and kind of sleep well. Um, so yes, probably just educating them on the things that they need to do, um, the rules and regulations of the countryside um, is, yeah. is the next step. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and and actually, so just speaking in in every episode I've done here for the past few months, I've I've we've talked about the pandemic and COVID nineteen, and in in your situation um, with the work you're doing with Green Team Team. I'm just curious, how has COVID affected, I, I know that you plan, you, you do plan a lot of these trips um, and in-person activities. How have you been adapting to, to life remote through, uh, you know, remote learning, essentially? Yes, well, for, for the members, for the Green Team 10 members in, during the quarantine period, we did some really great social media projects um, because everybody had a lot of time and everybody was happy to get together and chat online um, and do activities and make funny videos of things that they could do at home without any waste and things like that. So we had quite a fun time in that period. Um, Our other projects that were stopped because of social distancing haven't really got off the ground yet. So the camps in Zimbabwe uh, are not running. Um, the the project in the Maldives is not running. So it's taken a toll a little bit. The camps that we had organised we cancelled, but it was that was at the beginning of the year. It was relatively easy to do, and we donated the money that we would have used for the camps to the small projects we support uh, in Italy and the UK, so animal rescue and rehabilitation centres, because I think the yeah. knock on effect of well, certainly the feedback we've had is that the donations and things like that have fallen um, and kind of big sponsors have stopped sponsoring. So the projects are really struggling because they're not working and they're not funded. Um, yeah. So it, it's from that perspective been quite a difficult time. Yeah. I was going to say that that leads right into my next question of 
do you do you think that these projects that you work so closely with um, are going to be around after the pandemic or especially in places where tourism is such a big industry and tourism has been you know hammered across mm-hmm. the world by uh, by the pandemic and the lack of travel um, so I'm just curious do you, do you think that they're still going to be around yeah well my my ever optimistic side will say yes of course and I'll do everything I can to help them um, but to, to be truthful no I don't know that all of them will be because some are very small projects um, and some rely on key people um, and if the key people can't do it the the teacher who runs the project in uh, Zimbabwe because we have a side project um, that that looks after the girls that leave school um, and we've uh, sponsored this for a couple of years now and we went through all the stages that I spoke about earlier of having the elders sanction it and having everything done, going through all the, the right, um, the, the way to do it. And she's very enthusiastic. But the school's closed. She's not being paid. And she has to literally sell vegetables on the side of the road in order to make enough money to survive. And so how long this lasts for, I don't know. It's very yeah. possible that she won't be able to. I mean, right now, of course, she can't continue the project. Um, and for the period of time when there was, um, even with social distancing, it's not the same as it is where we are, where we can adapt and do different things because these people are living in very different conditions. So it's um, it's unlikely that that project will survive necessarily. And it would be the same for many other projects like that. The really small, the really important grassroots projects, the ones that change people's lives are the ones that suffer the most. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Exactly. They're, they're the ones that work so closely with the, the local communities and yes. where, at, where every dollar really is invested back into the community. Yes. And yeah, we, we've seen that in the States too. I mean, uh, nonprofits are going to face a massive hit from this pandemic. And it's just, yes. 
it's just the state of the economy. It's the state of giving. Um, you, you know, environmental issues are generally. Um, oh, I've I've heard this this saying once that, uh, you know, issue, issues that affect people directly, um, being like public health, really uh, take take the forefront to environmental issues, yeah. especially in times like this. And, and, it, <laughs> and it's yeah, yeah, and it's understandable, but. Um, you know, environmental nonprofits have always received less funding than um, other nonprofits addressing social issues or um, health is- public health issues. And especially now, it's 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 going to be interesting. You know, we're going to have to work hard to to keep these projects funded and running. And it, yeah. it's really going to take a lot of public support to make sure that these things stay for the future. Definitely. And that needs the kind of... Um coverage to show the young people because you we communicate the projects with the members and things like that and for them to understand that these things are really important and when they're older and they're the decision makers and they're able to decide what goes on I think we're in a time of well we're really in a time of change of course but I think there's going to be a shift in the responsibilities and things like that because I mean, you've got your political situation at the moment, which is going to come to a head in November. And in the UK, with the Brexit situation is going to come to a head in January. Um, And I think that a lot of people are kind of, well, yes, they're fed up with all the different goings on and things like that and media representation. And I just think that there will be a shift in what's important, whether it is... um, instigated by the terrible situations like the fires in California and things like that, or whether it's just an awakening of people's minds to say, right, well, this is more important. And if this works, then that's going to work. Because what's good of a health system if we can't breathe? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So polluted. So I'm really hoping that this generation is able to, to kind of facilitate those changes just by thinking differently exactly and that's i mean that's the core of your work is that you're you're shaping the minds of these next generations yes yes hopefully not not necessarily shaping but just opening and showing different perspectives yeah yeah that's a that's a much better way to put it (laughs) um and and so i'm actually curious so um now now talking pre-covid and just just generally what green team team does um when I know you, you work a lot to inspire teens to pursue careers in this field or, you know, futures working to fight, uh, to support biodiversity in, in the areas that they visited and, and to uh, address these environmental issues like climate change, overfishing and pollution. Um, and I'm curious if, you know, how do you, uh, kind of how do you phrase to them, you know, the uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to explain this here um ha, so um can, kind of when when you're educating uh the students who work with green team team and, and are a part of this do you share do you lean more on the ed on the end of uh inspiring them to really make a difference and and let them know uh that there is opportunity as you know as long as they they really work towards their goal of addressing one of these issues, or do you do you try and share some of the grim realities of working in the environmental field, um, which are that you know there is a, a lack of funding in this field. It's 
some of the job there's not tons of job opportunity you, you really have to work hard within this field um to be successful and to make a difference and i'm just curious um kind of how you ride that line of uh of inspiring you know these students versus kind of sharing with them like the, the realities of working in the environmental field okay yes i I think there has to be a balance because it's not possible to go, yeah, you should do this. It's really good. Save the world. Um, and then it's a really difficult journey. Um, but at the same time, it's like one of our, um, one of our, I don't know what you say rules or things is that, that we come from a positive point of view. So when we're talking about an issue, we don't show, um, negative pictures we don't use social shaming we don't use any of those kinds of tactics to make people feel bad about themselves in order to do something um, we empower people and give people the opportunity to do the things that they can do um, so young people are, at the moment are faced with a very difficult situation um, and a lot of people a lot of adults are saying yeah you're the change makers you can make the change it's your responsibility because you don't have the environment and you're not going to have pensions and you're not going to do this and you're not going to do that so you need to make a change but then we're not actually giving them the resources to do that with so I feel very um, I feel a lot of I have a lot of empathy for young people nowadays because they're given a problem but no solution or no ways of solving it so i would say to people that if this is the field they want to go into then they are, can be part of the solution but they have to be aware that it's going to take a lot of hard work and i yeah. think that there needs to be more support out there which is something that we try to do is we try to see and show big organizations and corporations that the there are small projects that they can support and kind of do some good in the world um, but it just goes back to the situation in the Maldives again. If the opportunities aren't there for the young people to take, then then what are they going to do? So it's it yes, it's really very difficult. We're very lucky in Europe and in the States to be able to just pick programs that we can study. Um, yeah. We know that maybe there's not going to be very many jobs out there, or it's going to be quite hard work. But I think if there are enough scientists and biologists and people there then we'll create the needs will be created um it sounds a bit utopian but i don't yeah. think you should give up what you want to do if you're really passionate about it because you don't think you're going to get a job because yeah that's not the right way to look at things no that's that's true and you know i've i've seen that personally just one of my own experiences when i was young uh, and in high school and looking at colleges I went to a university. I was very passionate about marine biology, but didn't know enough about the field because um, none of my family was in the field. They were all business uh, people, and you know, they, I just didn't have these connections. So I went to a university to learn more about it. And actually, the professor that I spoke with was really just very down about it. You know, mm -hmm. she she was very, very the opposite, complete, complete polar opposite of inspiring. You know, I went in there. The first thing she said was that, you know, if you want to study sharks, it's nothing like Shark Week. You're going to be behind. You're going to be behind a desk the whole time. Um, you know, don't expect expect to work hard, not make that much money. And she was very forward about it and, you know, almost deterred me from even pursuing the field. 
she um, wasn't wrong. She was probably testing you to see how passionate you really were. But there's another yeah. way of doing that as well, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But that that stuck with me, and I I kind of always wanted to prove her wrong <laughs> when I when I was in undergrad, and so you know I stuck with it, and obviously you know I'm still working in the field today, which you know is is great. But it I've seen personally, it takes it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of passion to be in this field, and sure. and um that's even something that I've seen with stu- with a lot of teenagers and students that I've taught in the U.S. is that. I've seen a lot of them. They're they're very engaged on social media. They're very interested and passionate about these topics, but it, it seems as though social media leads people in the in the direction of wanting to become activists rather than scientists. Yeah. Um, and and I'm I'm curious if you see that as well with the teenagers that you are working with. If if kind of activism in this you know. Um, like being very uh, engaging online and and sharing, you know, petitions for uh, a lot of people will share petitions for certain policies, uh, environmental policies, or they'll demon, you know, they'll they'll be very active. I know in Europe with the uh, demonstrations around climate change, um, I know those are those are huge uh, huge draws for young people. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. If you see that happening, you know, with the students you work with. Um, and what you what you think about it as a whole? We we connect with some key people who are very good activists, and I think probably the term responsible activism is is a good one to use. Um, and some of our members have joined the climate strikes, um, the school strikes for the climate, and it, I don't know. There's two sides to it, like everything. Theodora is not particularly a fan of striking because she says that a she needs to study and she wants to uh-huh. study well and she doesn't want to miss school and b that if she's going to use that time she'd rather use the time doing something constructive because she doesn't yeah. see that the that the activists are achieving anything necessarily yes they're achieving attention um, and they're doing something they believe in um, which is great but then there are also a number of people who jump on that who do want to skip school and who are not necessarily taking it seriously. So there's kind of, there's, there's two sides to it. I think the thing I like about it is, and I've been on a number of, well, not part of marches necessarily, but been in the vicinity at the same time um, as the young people are gathering. And I just think that there's something powerful about being part of a large group of people who all have the same objective overall. And I think that the young people in the future will go, well, in 2020, I was on this strike and I did this. And why did I do that? Okay, I did that because of of the environment. So how do I feel about that now? And I think that that's where the change is going to be. So again, it's it's a thought process. Um, I don't know how much it's changed policy. I don't know that the things, again, goes back to you saying that um, there's a lot of other things going on that take precedent to to the environment. So I think it's all still very new, and I think it's something we have to see what will happen in a period of time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And, I mean, even even from my angle, um, I know I know that students care a lot about climate change. They, care, they do care a lot about uh, plastic pollution as well. I'd say those are the, the two topics I've seen students really take a hold to. Um, but from my background and my experiences, 
I really, I do wish that more people knew about the issues of overfishing in our oceans and just over exploitation as a whole. Um, to me, that that really is the greatest direct impact on on the natural world. Like, you know, pull, pulling vast amounts of fish out of the ocean at unsustainable rates to me, to me, is one of the greatest environmental threats that out there right now, and it doesn't receive the attention that you know, uh, single use plastics do, or, no, or even and climate change does. Yes. Yes. And, you're absolutely and I, right. Yeah. And I just, I personally feel that it's something that the, stu- that students just aren't directly, um, just, they don't see it firsthand. They, you know, when they're, when they're out in these natural places, kind of with plastic, they, it's, it's not as visual. It's a little bit swept under the rug in a way, like, uh, it's not going to be as forefront, um, in their social media feeds. Right. Yeah, but it's hugely political because if you look at the fishing around the Galapagos Islands and things like that, um, and in the kind of waters and spaces that we don't really hear very much about, I can't even believe how there are still things living in the sea when you look at the quantities that the that the trawlers take. Yeah, and I know I know you do focus on some land-based issues that are are related to overexploitation, but um, is that? Is overexploitation of our natural resources a, an issue that Green Team team, fo- you know, that you do teach to your students as well? I think it, it, if it comes up in a project area, then yes. So um, in the project area, uh, in the project in Romania, uh, we were working with the European bison um, in an area where they were doing um, uh, reintroduction, and we had uh, one of the local schools did a little competition where they designed something that would help their area. And I was quite taken aback by the project that was for reforestation um, because I'd come in to Romania on a plane looking at these just incredible forests that were just green and full and lush and incredible. Um, And then I sat down and heard the teenagers say, well, they're cutting down too many trees. Um, and so if it's in within the project, then yes, it's something that we should gotcha. bring up more, but then that would then go against the way we work. So we'd have to have what was affected by that as the identified species and then work from there. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I appreciate that, that model that you have is, is looking at a problem and getting the students to kind of really dive into it themselves and and so you, uh, Ellie, I know you mentioned earlier that you had some issues with just this, the school systems as a whole in Europe that you work, that your students are in and, and that you had the opportunity to work with. What, what was your biggest issues with the, the, the system as a whole? Um, I just think that it's quite outdated. Um, I think that, I mean, the world's changed very quickly in the last 40 years or so. And I think the education system is still in teaching people young people for the past rather than the future um and i found out recently that um the standardized testing system in the us the revenue and i could be wrong about this but this is what i learned from quite a reputable source the revenue um for the testing is bigger than the revenue from hollywood and so really yes and it that just threw me because i thought how are we going to change? Because the reason that it's so outdated is because we're just basically training children to pass exams, to get grades, to go yes. to university. And so how are we going to change that? 
to project-based learning or inquiry-based learning and things like that if it's such a fundamental part of the economy. Um, and then I thought about it and I realized it's probably the same in the UK as well. I don't know in terms of uh, volume, but in terms of importance. And I think that puts us in a very difficult situation because we really need to uh, we need to help young people. And I've had very interesting conversations with lots of different educators about this because people are like, you can't just get rid of knowledge. We need knowledge. We, we need physicists and chemists and things like that. Like, yes, we do, but there are different ways of teaching. And not everybody has to sit an exam and not everybody's good at sitting exams. And the anxiety and the depression and the disorders that arise from school-related difficulties um, are, are quite high and I think that being able to maybe adapt the education system to be able to maybe have two channels maybe have an academic channel and a project-based channel I don't know it's I, I can't yeah. necessarily <laughs> change policy and I'd have to study it and talk to loads of people before I came up with a, 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 a good alternative but I just think that it's at a point where we need to we need to support the the young people more, especially if we're putting them in, in the position of changing the world. Exactly, and I mean, I've I've seen it firsthand working as an educator in, in New England as well, where I've taken kids outdoors to teach them about some, the local natural environment and scientific topics, and it you see kids that they were having problems just paying attention in a classroom setting as soon as they're outside. They're they're immediately the ones picking up the rocks, counting them. Um, exactly. You know, ain't, ain't, they're they're the ones digging under rocks to figure out what kind of uh, ecosystems and yes. live there, and how how animals interact. And they that's and you can see when you come back like a week later, they still remember all yes. of those topics because they taught them to themselves essentially. Yes. And and they they worked at their own pace. And I think that I mean I'm I'm a massive. Um, supporter of outdoor learning, and I think I, I do think that one of the the bright lights and silver linings to come out of the pandemic is going to be that educators really start to use outdoor spaces more, yeah. especially locally in the in the locations that they're teaching at, um, to learn about local wildlife, scientific topics. I mean, teach math outside. You know, have have the students count rocks, like, and and teach them to you know teach young students division and multiplication that way, like yeah. get them hands on and outside. And um, I truly believe, I, I mean, this is, this is a hope that I have is that this is uh, acts as a wake up call just to the importance of outdoor education. And, and it is at this time, it's definitely a safer alternative to, to being definitely. in classrooms. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, it's like, sorry, go on. No, no, go, go for it. Oh, it was just something I was thinking about earlier um, is that we talk about taking children out into nature, but I think we need to start bringing nature to the children. And I think that um, the development of sustainable cities um, and things like that, we need to bring more green into the city. So I'm speaking from a particularly green city. Um, and I just think that if we can make more green spaces, in schools, on rooftops, green walls, growing walls, and things like that, then we can bring the nature to the children, and then we can do those kinds of things. Because they're another kind of, I mean, it's just a no-brainer. We teach children in classrooms with, like, very few windows, 
and they're in small groups and they don't interact with their peers and even the teachers the teachers teach isolated if you had classrooms that had glass walls the behavior of the students and the teachers would be completely different and the lessons would be completely different and what they achieved would be so different so it changing the um the nature of the classroom as well i think is really important um and bringing nature to the children rather than necessarily having to take the children to the nature would be a really good thing yeah and and that's massively important today especially just making making outdoor places accessible for everyone yes. uh, especially especially in urban areas i think that's huge um yes. you know yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. But yeah, no, I, I think that's massive. And it's it's something I really wanted to speak about with you just because, um, you know, it, you have this super interesting perspective of being able to to work outside of the system and, and to really create your own structure of how you educate teens. And, you know, I, I think it's it's an, an incredible opportunity. And, and I think that what the, the knowledge that you've had over these years um, it's really valuable for other educators out there. Um, do, do you think that other educators that are working within a, a system, you know, like, like these, uh, that uses this, uh, uh, standardized testing and all of this, can they adopt some of your practices or, or use, you know, some I of your experiences so. as a guide? I think so, because I think what it really comes down to is, is thinking and metacognition and thinking about thinking. And if you can bring that into the classroom and you can help and facilitate students to think about what they're thinking and to evaluate their thoughts and to evaluate where they form their thoughts, what sources they use, what evidence they use, who affects what they think, how do they affect them and things like that. And I think if we increase people's ability to be self-reflective, um, then that will change a lot of things because that can change everything in their life. So that can change their relationships, it can change their well-being, it can change their relationship with the environment. I think teachers have a, a tough deal because they have so much to do. And I think because of the criteria, and especially in, it's the same, in well-performing um, schools and not so well-performing schools, the pressures to raise the grades or to keep the grades is so intense that they they don't really have very much else to do, let alone yeah. time to think. And so taking on new things necessarily is not very easy. And whenever we've tried to take programs into schools, it's always met with the resistance of, well, I don't have any time to do anything else. Um, so we always adapt the, the programs and we provide the lesson plans and things like that. But I think ultimately what I've done and what we do with Green Team Team or what I do in school and I work with philosophy for children as well, um, is about getting people to think and to evaluate uh, what makes them happy, uh, what makes them sad, and, and to look after their well-being. So, yes, there's room, but it's something that has to be done. It has to be done carefully, just like the projects. It's not You can't just go in and stand in front of a room of teachers and go, right, you should do this, this, and this, because every teacher has yep. their own unique way of teaching. And some teachers think it's great and some teachers don't. So yeah. again, it, it's, it's, there's not a one size fits all. Yeah, what, what you said just, it truly resonated with me when I taught as an outdoor educator because some of this, what I noticed was that some of the schools actually didn't want to work with our 
I worked in an after school program and some of the schools didn't want to bring us there because of the, you know, the, it was just an inconvenience to their work schedule. You know, they, they, instead they would have preferred to have students in class because there's less risk to the students. Yes. There's there's less liability. There was, um, you know, they didn't have to worry about timing. It was, it, it was just less work for them. Whereas it was just, it, you saw though how much of a better experience it was for the teenagers and the, and the students. And yes. it, that's something that really stuck with me was that, you know, to give students these, to bring these inquiry-based learning, this inquiry-based learning and these experiences to a, a school system, you, you do have to make it palatable for them in a way and make yes. it, you know, really make it as easy as possible for them to adopt um, is what I've found. But yeah, so that, that, that really stuck with me. Um, Cause yeah, I, I ran, I've run into that myself quite a few yes, times. Yes, Because people say, why don't they do more of it in schools? Why don't you teach the children around it? Why don't you? Do? And it's like, okay, yes, we would. So you're, it, there's forever an obstacle or something in the way that you have to get over or get around. Um, and it, again, it's a, it's a long game. It's not something that's going to happen very quickly. And there are so many variables. Yeah. And no, that's, that's really, that's really very true. And, um, Ellie, I, w- I wanted to ask you two last questions here, okay. um, that, that I think our audience is going to find very interesting. Um, so the first one being, what advice would you give to a teen who's interested in pursuing a career in the field of environmental science or environmental conservation? Um, and, and is really passionate about addressing the, a specific environmental issue. Um, okay, I guess the same as before a little bit when we spoke about um, would you tell them how difficult it was or what, what would you say to them? I think the thing is if you know what you love uh, and you're passionate about something, then you, you're going to do it. Um, and I think it's really important that you do that and you don't let people stand in your way. If you are a responsible activist and you think you can make a change, um, then then go out and do it. If you uh, have a passion for teaching, um, then go and teach. If you have a passion for uh, numbers and you're an economist, then go and be an economist. Do business management. Set up something that's going to help. But I think... A lot of the time, young people have a passion, but it's kind of guided in a different direction or their parents want something else from them or the school suggests that it works like this or they can't actually follow it in school because there isn't a subject. So I think I would say to people just, it sounds very utopian again, but do what you love and connect with people who do the same thing because they'll recognize the spark in you that they had and they will help you and they will point you in the right direction because there's there's always a way to do something there's always a way around something um it just takes determination and resilience uh, and passion so i would always say do what you love yeah that i i entirely agree with you there everyone's everyone's got especially if it's something that you're incredibly passionate about this is it, it reminds me exactly of my path you just never give up on it. And yes. it's, you just, you have to follow your, your own, you know, your, your personal goal, your personal legend. Like, uh, I've, I've actually, have you ever read the book, The Alchemist? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's all about following your personal yes. legend, and and that just it made me think of that. It just sparked, uh, you know, th that saying in that in the Alchemist is, you know, no matter what, you know, you're gonna face ups and downs through life. Yes. You know, life is life is kind of like a hike. You're gonna go. You're gonna have peaks and you're gonna have valleys, but you just constantly have to keep on moving forward towards your end goal. Yes. And we spend yeah. half of our life, or more than half of our life, working. So. It's quite important to do something that you're happy doing. And I think often our parents say they, they're really trying to help and they give us advice and their advice is based on their experiences. But sometimes the experiences that they had were in a time that's very different to the time that we're in. So I think it's important that if you have a passion for something and your parents are trying to guide you in a different direction, I think it's important to listen to them and understand where they're coming from but I think it's also important to to research what you want to do um, and make decisions based on what you want to do and not what other people want you to do and I know that's probably controversial in some ways but it's really important I mean we're not we're not in a, a secure um, environment when my parents were young they had a career and that lasted their whole life whereas we're in this very, very um, difficult time of change. And so we need to be flexible and adaptable and we need to be able to be strong with our decisions uh, and say, right, this is what I want to do and I'm going to be flexible and I'm going to follow it um, and I'm going to get there. And you will find people who will help you because like-minded people, I mean, there's a saying, birds of a feather flock together. So yeah. you, you meet people who will help you, but it's about following what you really want to do. And I suppose that's the message that comes to the alchemist. Um, yeah, Ex yeah. exactly. <laughs> no, I think you made, you made really good points there. And, and I can, I can personally relate to that. Um, you know, my family, uh, my, my grandfather was straight from straight off the boat from Italy, uh, from Northern Italy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he made his, he made his mark in America. He started his own business from from nothing, from working as a a busboy in a restaurant to owning his own owning his own restaurant. And he, my my family didn't really understand, you know, the field of marine science. They just understood become a doctor, become a lawyer, um, become successful like that. And I had to kind of show them that you know this is this is my metric of success is making a difference. Um, yes. for the issues that I care about. And, you know, it, it's, you're teaching each other in a way, you know, mm -hmm. I learned a lot about the business world and, you know, really how to, how to truly make changes happen in with, you know, within a business place and, and working for a nonprofit. I learned a lot of that from my grandfather and from my father, but I also did teach them that you can really, you know, life doesn't have to be um, working a nine to five just to pay the bills. It can be working something that you're truly passionate about. Um, so yeah, there was there's a lot of learning from both angles. Uh, you know, growing up and and finding my place within this field as well. I think it's really good, and I think something you said about earning money and paying the bills. I don't think young people have the same kind of motivation. I don't think the structure is the same as it used to be in terms of getting married, having a mortgage, saving for a pension, and things like that. I think that structure's changed. And so I think people who are less motivated by money are able to go forward and do these kinds of things because the reward is not uh, financial. The reward is change. 
And I think yeah. more room will be made for um, for careers like this because we do really need to preserve the planet. Um, and there's so much of it that we need to preserve that it's not just going to take a handful of biologists or chemists or whoever. It's it it needs a lot more people. So people like us need to go out and help people who have a passion. Um, and yeah. so I my door is always open. When my door is always open, my phone is always available, my email and things like that. And I love the fact that through Instagram and through the website, we I people just email me or message me and say I'd really like to do this I'd really like to do that can I help can we do this it's not a lot of people but it's people who have a passion who really want to do something who maybe just see someone's approachable um, and I'm right there and pointing them in the right direction and introducing them to people and there's lots of me out there as well you just have to find them so it's about being driven and following your instinct and not accepting no for an answer yeah, I think that's that's a perfect takeaway here. Um, don't feel, you know, if you're if you're a student out there or an educator and you'd like to to connect more with with Green Team Team and Ellie, just feel free to reach out and contact us. Absolutely. You know, any, any anyone that that is working in a field that you're interested in, feel free to reach out and and that's really that's a, your first step in the door. That's that's how you you make these connections and get to learn from other people's experiences and what they have to say. And so, no, I think that's that's a really great point. Um, Ellie, I, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to mention to our audience before we uh, wrap up here? I don't think so. I think my brain is buzzing and I'm already thinking about different things that I should be doing and that I could be doing. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you and for you to ask me some interesting questions because now I'm thinking about some of the things you said and wondering what I should do about it. So um, yes, I just say thank you very much. Oh, no problem, Ellie. Thank you for taking the time to be a part of our show. I'm sure everyone out there in the audience has learned a ton um, and you know, there, there is a lot of, I think the, the silver lining is that there is a lot of hope for the future, um, even in these times of darkness. So Definitely. thank you, Ellie. Um, I'm looking forward to, to talking to you more uh, in the future and working together more. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Brian.